Hi, everybody. How's it going? All right. So I'm going to start just by making an excuse, which is how I usually like to start things. Just tempers expectations. That's what I find in general. Uh, I just spent all day yesterday driving back from Breckenridge, Colorado. Um, and so it's been a really rough life for me, as you, as you, can, as you can tell from Mark's uh, whimper. Yeah, but we did, we left at 4 and somehow managed to get home by 6.30 p.m. with our 5 and 4-year-old, and they actually did excellent. We only stopped four times, if you can believe it. That includes gas and food. I don't even understand how it happened. All I can say is it's a miracle. I want to thank God for it. And the best part of it was our first stop was in Trinidad, Colorado, all right? And I stopped there. We walked into a McDonald's, and lo and behold, who do I see? but the entire Thomas family. So there's Trey and Laura Thomas. And like Trey, I could see his brain trying to make sense of what he saw. I instantly recognized him as Trey. I was like, hey, Trey. And he's all, hey, Garrett. It was really good, man. But what are the chances? I was trying to calculate what the chances are at that day, at that time in Trinidad, Colorado, at that McDonald's. It, I mean, what are the chances? I don't know. It's a God thing, man. It's cool. I like that. I'm starting to sense a theme uh, this morning, as, and as I think about the way that God assembles His church and the way that the Spirit works, not just in one person at a time, but usually in numerous people, especially in the same congregation oftentimes, uh, I'm, I'm unsurprised, uh, but happily unsurprised, maybe I could put it as that, because I, I've seen God do this a lot. But hearing uh, what Josh shared about today, uh, and even what Pico was sharing about too, and just thinking about the kingdom of God and the power of God, we're going to speak today about the, uh, I think it's the second to last of our Seeing Jesus series. It might be third to last. I'm pretty sure it's second though. Um, And it's about seeing Jesus and his power. All right. And so I was thinking about it and and, uh, Josh kept referring to this kingdom of God, right? Kingdom of God. And I don't remember the exact phrase from Merton. Maybe Josh will help me out back there. Uh, but he said something along the lines of, 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 of ushering in this new kind of kingdom, this new uh, kingdom of God. And I remember, um, I remember my sophomore year at UT Dallas, and which at this point literally was oh, like a half a lifetime ago, which is crazy to me to think of. All right, and some of you people that are older than me are like, okay, half a lifetime ago. I wish it was half a lifetime ago. It feels like a long time to me. And I remember there was a, we, I was doing FOJ, Focus on Jesus, with uh, a student named Joseph. And I remember uh, there was a, like a, a study on the kingdom of God. And I remember thinking to myself, I have no idea what this means. No idea whatsoever. And I was supposed to teach this other younger guy. He was a year younger than me, so I clearly had a lot more knowledge than he did. Uh, in a college kid's mind, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so I remember trying to teach through this lesson of kingdom of God, but I really did not understand what it meant. I really, I mean, there's a lot of parables about it. It's the first thing that comes out of Jesus's mouth, right? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. And there's this sense in which it's this really, really important thing in scripture. Maybe you could argue it's the most important concept in scripture over against everything else, because it is literally what God is building what he is making, what he's already made, and it overlaps with the present in many many important ways, but it's yet to come in some other ways, and it's pretty confusing. But it is central for us 
to emphasize as we think about these kinds of concepts, whether it's humility or love or whatever, that we would think very clearly and closely about what the gospel says about the kingdom of God is extremely important. So I want to just do my best to just do a quick definition of the kingdom of God for those of us that are kind of lost in the sauce still about kingdom of God. And it's so important before we talk about the power of God, because understanding what the kingdom is, is going to mean everything for understanding what God conceives of as being power and powerful. All right. So the kingdom of God is God's rule and reign over everything. Now there's a problem because if you say this is the kingdom of God, I don't know about you, But whether it's our current political system, or it's past, or whatever is to come in the future, or whatever is existing in the world right now, I don't sense that everything that's happening is stuff that God wants to happen. So how can it be his kingdom, and him ruling and reigning over it, and yet all this awful stuff is happening? Why do we have orphans? Why is that still a thing? Why do we have disease? Why do we have corruption? Not just at the highest levels, but at the lowest level and at a heart level in each one of us. How can the kingdom of God be a real thing if we can't see it and taste it and touch it? Well, Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God. When he says the kingdom of heaven is near, the kingdom of God is near, what he means is God is going to break in to this sinful world with his pre-existing kingdom that is ruled by him, the kingdom of heaven. And he will bring it here It will overtake this world and all of its sin and the evil in it. And he will reign and rule for all. Thanks to Josh. (laughs) Forever and ever, having made things right. Now, this kingdom already exists. And it also, though, has not come to its full fruition. And we... Those of us who have entered into the kingdom of God by way of of Jesus, we have access to this kingdom and are actually meant to be kingdom bringers in this world. The trick, though, about the kingdom of heaven is it's almost the exact opposite of the kingdom of this world that we currently live in. And so Christians are caught in the middle of living in this current reality And at the same time, trying to usher in the kingdom of God. And the reason I'm emotional about that is because the world is this evil, dark place because of us. We did this. We do this. There is enough food in this world for everyone to eat, but we are selfish. There are enough places for people to live. Thanks, Preston. But we are selfish. Christians included in that. But we're meant to be ushering in a new kingdom. God's reign and God's rule on this planet right now. So we have this this first fruit, this taste of the kingdom right now that we're meant to be engaging in. Whether that's about friendship or family or life or all, all things are yours in Christ is what the scripture says, what's what Paul says. And what he means by that is you have already been, been ushered into this kingdom already, but then also we await the kingdom to come in its finality. So why do I bring up this, this idea of the kingdom? And by the way, man, 
Whew, I am so looking forward to that. Man, I'm so looking forward to that. And if you yourself do not sense that you are looking forward to the kingdom come, which by the way is also in the Lord's prayer, preeminently featured at the beginning of the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. When we pray for the kingdom to come, we're saying, God, please hurry up, Maranatha. Please make it happen quickly. This place sucks. There's beautiful things about it. And I think those things will be preserved because God made a good creation. I don't think this whole thing is going to hell in a handbasket, all right? I don't think that way. I don't think God's going to light the world on fire, kick it to the curb, and then we're going to be floating ghosts out there. That doesn't even sound fun. God will reclaim and renew. There's no doubt about that. He will remake, all right? And I'm so looking forward to that. But it's so important that you have that in mind if you want to live the kind of life that God calls you to live. Because if you think this reality is the real reality, you're missing it. You have to see things with spiritual eyes, with the eyes of the kingdom, if you want to live a kingdom life. And to live a kingdom life is going to require that you live a dramatically different life than the lives of people in the world. That being said, the world's definition of power is really simple. In sociology, I, 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 I taught a class that was just about class status and power. And the concept of power is really simple. It's just the ability to make other people do what you want. It's really simple. It's why wealthy people will give up positions in companies to become politicians. It's about power. It's about being able to make people do what you want them to do. That is this present realm's definition of power. And it makes a lot of sense. And they wield that power in accordance with that definition. It's nice to be able to get other people to do exactly what you want them to do. Wouldn't it be amazing if we said, hey, everyone, we're starting church, and everyone just about-faced, and they were just mm, ready to go. <laughs> Man, I wish I had that kind of power. Nobody amongst us has that kind of power, not even Ronnie himself. He's tried. It doesn't work. Wouldn't it be awesome if whatever I said that is what happened. Well, it would be awesome for me. Not in the long run, but it would be awesome for me at least temporarily. It wouldn't be awesome for you. And as I think about this, this concept of power, it reminds me of something that I'll say to people that are at their lowest. And, and I get to, to minister to people that are oftentimes in, in the throes of very difficult life circumstances. And one of the things I say to them is, is, is to repeat to them a factual statement that has two parts. And it is the most important thing that I can help them remember, no matter what they're going through. One is that God has all the power in the cosmos. All the real power is possessed by God to control not just this world, but the entirety of the cosmos. All right? All of it in the universe, God has all the power. And the second part is even better news and he loves you dearly. So why do you worry? Have faith. God has all the power in the cosmos, and he loves you dearly as a child. How wonderful is that? What else is there left to worry about if that is the fact, if those are the two facts? And as I think about what that means, then I have to understand what power is. Not just understanding Christ's power, but also understanding what power means for me, right? 
So I picked two verses in seeing Jesus that kind of get at that. Those two verses, the, in the first one the, one, the one that's in John, which we'll look at here in a second, it's in John 20 if you want to start kind of making your way there. The first one explores the power of Christ and our definition and use of the word power. And the second verse explores how we experience God's power in us, right? And just a reminder for those of you that aren't aware, we're just going through a series of a one-on-one or a group Bible study that we created to help people minister to people around them. And I just want to keep this out here. If you haven't asked anybody yet to, doing, to do seeing Jesus with you, would you be bold and ask somebody? I know you've got someone in your life who either doesn't know much about Jesus or who would be very, very encouraged by going through a study like this. Go ask them to do that, all right? Okay, so John 20. I'm going to read this, and again, like in the rest of this series, I'm just going to let these verses kind of be my points. I don't have points. Uh, I'm just going to, we're going to look at these verses together and uh, try to make sense of, of what's being talked about here in the scripture. Let the scripture kind of be our guide. So John 20, starting in verse 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip a little bit and go 11 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already removed from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken the Lord from the tomb, and we do not know where they have put him. Now in verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. So as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have put him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and yet she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And he had said, And that he had said these things to her. Christ crucified and risen from the dead is the ultimate display of God's power. And I was thinking about how crazy that is in the face of creation in general. I got to spend the week in the mountains looking at these these massive mountains. Every time that you think that's a big mountain, like whenever we were driving, I think like just outside of Amarillo, Jack kind of saw like some hills that I would call like some like decently sized hills. He's like, dude, look at those mountains. And I was like, those aren't mountains, buddy. Just wait till you see that. And every time that we'd, we'd go a little bit further, like they get bigger and bigger and they just keep, just keep getting bigger. And it's, it's unbelievable. And I can't even imagine, like if I was standing before in the mountains in Tibet, like at Everest, and looking at those, I might, my head might explode. I might just pop right, like my brain just pop right out. As I was thinking about that display of power, to know that, that, that Jesus crucified and resurrected is far, that displayed far more power than that is just mind-boggling to me. In this one act, he defeated death, 
freed us from sin and brought us life, foiled Satan's plans, and made possible us spending eternity with him. It changed the entire course of humanity. The question of what did his power look like should resonate with us here. And also why he displayed it. What did his power look like? What does the power of God look like? Does it look like human power? Is it used for the same ends as human power is used for? And if human power is the ability to get people to do what we want, Christ's power seems different. It revolves first and foremost around, not my will, but yours be done, which is what he says in the garden before he is crucified. It revolves not about what he wants, but rather what God wants. That is the first and most important thing that you can understand about power, is that it is about what God wants. And secondly, what I see in Jesus' kind of power as opposed to ours, is that it's sacrificially life-giving. And I want to explore both of those key differences. Our power is so often about us, and it's definitely not sacrificial. It's self-interested, isn't it? God's power is primarily about, or Jesus' power is primarily about doing what God wants, and it's about giving life to others, which necessarily requires sacrifice. In a worldview, whatever worldview you have around power, if it's not self-giving, it's not kingdom power. It's just world, the world's power. And it won't affect anything truly. So, that first part around it being God's will and not ours. We're often busy choosing to use our influence and our money and our words and our position and you fill in the blank to get what we want. The hard thing about this is that it's usually not even intentional. Or intentionally selfish or mean-spirited. It's just cooked into sinful human nature, isn't it? Think about it. Have you ever had the conversation with your spouse about where to eat for dinner? Right? Is it truly, really, whatever you want in the whole cosmos? I just want what you want, babe. No, it's not at all. You know what you want. You're just hoping, you're just hoping that the words that are going to come out of their mouth is exactly what you want. If it's not, and they're like, I want pizza, you're like, anything but pizza. (laughs) And what you mean by anything but pizza is what you want. That's the way we are. We have preferences, and we want others to live by them. We have desires, and we want other people to desire whatever we desire. Whatever my political leaning is, make that your political leaning. Whatever my thought process is, make that your thought process. It's not even an intentional thing. It is a baseline. This is what's scary about it. It is a baseline of human nature, sinful human nature. And that's why when we talk about this today, I want to invite you to think really deeply, not just about what you say you think, but what is happening at a baseline level in your heart and in your life and in your actions, more importantly, right? Your behavior, okay? So, it's, like I said, it's not usually intentionally selfish or mean-spirited, but you just got to consider, you know, like, uh, like you let the tall guy sit in the front seat. The tall guy could exist just fine in the back seat. He'd be a little cramped, but he's tall, so he gets to sit in the the front seat. It's a position thing. He's, He's literally taller than you, so he gets the better position. 
Consider getting your kids to do something that you could do, which is something I find myself guilty of so often. I'm like, I could definitely do this, but you're my child. So you've got to do what I say. So could you get me that drink? <laughs> and they're like, no. And I'm like, I didn't ask, and <laughs> even though I did. <laughs> I'm just using an example that's not like from my life. I'm showing. <laughs> just kidding. What about talking to food service employees in demanding ways or making people drive closer to you because you're busier or you fill in the blank? Power is about getting other people to do what you want. How often are you either consciously or subconsciously really just trying to get other people to do what you want? You really want them to kind of come towards you in the whole thing. That is the way the world uses power. And they use whatever mechanism that they can whether shame or guilt or position or you name it, to try to make other people do what they want them to do. And it comes very naturally to us. It is first nature for us to use whatever means we have to get what we want. And again, I have to point out that this is just, it's rarely this conscious uh, and intentional set of thoughts and behaviors, and that's what makes it so tricky. Now, add in the fact that we live in a culture that has completely green-lighted, individualistic, and opportunistic behaviors, like haggling people that are in low leverage positions, buying the cheapest things without asking any questions, paying people the lowest that we can get away with because it's fair market, in a mentality that seems to say all is fair in love and war and politics and capitalism and, 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 and. Let me ask you a question. Those of you that engage in business or life that way. Do you think Christ will have said to you that you were exempt because your culture permitted it in business? Or that your culture permitted it in politics? He will not flee from that wrath. You will pay for everything that you've demanded. Very few people are asking the questions that Christ's life demands that we ask. How do I use my power, for instance? And am I using my power for me or for God? When I say power, I mean my position, my wealth, my ability, you fill in the blank. The truth that Jesus tells Pilate when he tells him he can send Jesus to his death is no less true for us. Jesus says to him, you would have no power, none at all. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. The power you have, whatever it looks like, has been given to you from above. Do you wield it for yourself? Or do you use it for God? Considering all this gives me pause. I feel very convicted as I think through what this means for my life. Have I recognized that the power that I have, however little or much, is given by God and meant to accomplish His will and not mine? is the question. And I'd encourage you to ask the same question of yourself. The second thing here in this verse is that we we also talked about is this component of Jesus' use of power being this sacrificially self-giving, sacrificially life-giving. And before we get into that, I just want to say that that, that Jesus' power is so so different than mine. Jesus' power is meek. It's this word I don't really fully understand I, I get it. I understand that meek, meekness just means power under control. I just don't know what that's like. 
All I know is power under my control, and my control is generally not good. My control is usually like, if I can, I probably will, because that's what everyone's expecting. It's a baseline. Why do anything different? Maybe it's, it's the most helpful way to put like, power from the kingdom sense is if you use power the way the kingdom dictates that you use it, people will be surprised by it. And if you use power the way the world uses it, people will just think it's normal. They won't even be upset with you, even in the Christian community. Right? It's normal to give honor to whoever stands up and preach in front of you. It's not normal to give honor to people who are just cleaning the building. That's why whenever we have a sign-up for people cleaning the building, there's not many people that are like, I am in. But if I was like, who wants to be a leader or a teacher or get up in front of people? How many people are like, I've got something to say. I've got something to say. I've been meaning to say this in front of everybody. (laughs) That'd be super boring, by the way, if everyone just got up and shared whatever they had been meaning to say. (laughs) By the way... It's already boring when I'm doing it. Okay, so when I think about this, this meekness of, of Christ's power, I need to, to, to describe the, the fact that like Jesus could have destroyed everyone trying to destroy him and been in the right. In fact, we might have been reading a Bible that was like, right when they were about to crucify him, Jesus called down angels and wiped them all out. And we'd be all like, yeah, like, sweet. This is the way it should have gone. And we could have had a completely different understanding of God and of power. But guess what? God would have been in the right even and still didn't use it that way. Still didn't use his power that way. Kind of bothers me in some ways. He could have with a word made whatever he chose to happen, happen. But against all human reason, the God who has all power is gentle and lowly and humble. He commands us to obey, but only as a loving parent, not as a power-hungry boss. And his resurrection is proof that his power isn't about him. He uses it for us. If his power was about him, he would have not chosen suffering and death. If it was about him, he wouldn't have become a man at all. He would not have suffered insults by the mouths of the people that he created. He would not have chosen to go defeat death and sin and Satan and be raised again. He used his power for us because that's what kingdom power is really about. The resurrection then is the great invitation to life made possible by the wonderful and self-giving power of God. In the kingdom, power is given by God to be used for others, not for self. It's to look after the orphan and the widow and their distress, as James says, which I wrote before I even knew what Josh was talking about today. That's real power. Real power is not using your money to get whatever you want. Real power is using your money to support orphans in Africa. (laughs) That's real power. That's kingdom power. That's the kind of power that will change their lives. Far more than your use of that $100 is going to change yours. It's not something to be used to your own advantage, but instead it's meant to be used sacrificially for others. If God then has given you power, you are meant to use it on behalf of others and not yourself. The cross and the resurrection are the ultimate examples of this. There's two things to consider here then about this verse. Do I, A, clearly see the power of God in Christ crucified and raised again? 
And B, does my use of power look anything like that? Finally, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. Second Corinthians, sorry, what did I say 9 through 10? 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. My apologies. Those of you that know the context of this verse, it's Paul saying that he's been given this, uh, this thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan, a torment to him. And this is Jesus' response to it. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I delight in weaknesses in insults, in distresses, in persecutions, in difficulties, in behalf of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In this last verse, I want to explore a bit of how we experience God's power in us. Up to this point, we've been speaking about our power as this disconnected entity from God's. And in some ways, that is the case, but it's not the full reality, especially for those of us that are learning how to mature in Christ. Which, by the way, I want to encourage you all the more. It is not merely meant to be the end of your spirituality to accept Jesus as Lord. Your life is supposed to continually be made to look more and more like Christ's. That's the goal here. This is not just kind of a holding pattern until Christ returns. You're meant to look more and more like him, be more and more of a messenger and an usher of the kingdom of God in this world. As a reminder, there's two kinds of power that we can recognize. There's human power and there's God's power. You could call it the world's power and kingdom power. One is about controlling others and the other is about giving life. One is about getting all that we can get. The other is about what is given. One emphasizes control and looking good and being high in position. The other emphasizes surrender and looking weak. So Paul is speaking of a time in this scripture. Paul is speaking of a moment in time where he heard from Christ as he grappled with his lack of human control. It's this really cool moment, right? Where there's this insight. Paul's like, here's how it happened for me. I was complaining to God and had asked him over and over and over again to get rid of this weakness in my life, whether it was physical or mental or otherwise. We don't really know. Everyone's got an opinion on that. We just don't know, okay? All I know is that he did not like it. It did not help him feel good or feel in control or whatever. And many of us can identify with something like that, right? And he was grappling with God on it. And Jesus spoke to him. How cool. And he essentially says to him, this is the Garrett version, human control is overrated. I have real power, but it's not going to make you look good, feel strong, and control things. It's going to look like me on the cross. You want to come along? So Paul says in turn, all right then. I definitely feel like a weak, out-of-control loser, so it looks like I'm right where I need to be. This exchange between Paul and Jesus, whatever it looked like, is awesome insight into how we ought to approach power in our lives. We've got to get rid of a desire for human control, human power, the ability to control our situation and to control others, especially our spouses and our kids and all the ability. We've got to control it. We've got to make it happen. We've got to make sure what we want happens, happens. We have to have some semblance of control over our lives, right? No, we've got to get rid of that and replace it with a hunger for God and to experience his power in our lives, which usually looks like us looking and feeling weak. 
There is very real freedom and life in releasing the desire to control and to have it all together, to achieve the higher rank, whatever that looks like, in learning instead to value weakness. Can you say what Paul says, which is, I delight. I don't think he's using hyperbole. I think this guy, what the heck? This guy delighted in weakness and insults and hardships and persecution, persecutions. Because he's like, you know what that means, right? That means God's going to come through big. That means there's no semblance of me feeling like I'm in control or feeling like I've got to have it all together. A big part of me wonders if one of our main problems is that we, are, we, we have so much seeming control over things that we tend to forget that you don't have control over a single thing. Not a single thing. You can get sick and die like that. You get hit by a car on the way home like that. You, can, like, you have no control over anything. If you want proof of that, like, go have a kid. <laughs> I'm completely out of control. How do I control this thing? <laughs> so we find that when we value human power, we won't, expe- we won't really experience the power of God. And that when we value the power of God, we won't care much for human control. Isn't that cool? I'm going to say that again. When we value human power, we won't experience God's power. And when you value the power of God, you won't care much for human power. That is control, rank, recognition, etc. I wrote in my notes, how are you doing with that, Garrett? (laughs) I can only really ask God for help. I do know one thing. If I truly desire the power of God, I have only to surrender. In that vein, I want you to pray with me the prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will. All I have and call my own, you have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. You guys go in peace.